0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Ismail Byashev. Ismail is a historian of empire and a specialist in Russian imperial and early Soviet history. He received his PhD from the University of Illinois Chicago in spring 2023 where his dissertation, Beyond Myth and Ruin, Archaeology and Nomadism in the Russian Empire and Early USSR, charted the emergence, historical development, and global networks of the field of nomadic archaeology in the Russian Empire. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So thank you so much, Ismail, for joining me.
1: Thank you so much, Maggie. Thank you so much to all your listeners for having me. I'm very excited to be here, especially as someone who's listened to the podcast before. It's, it's a great pleasure. I look forward to our conversation. Today.
2: Amazing. Uh, I'm really excited to have you on because I think your research um, deals with a really interesting aspect of a topic that has come up quite a bit on the podcast um, in the past around what you call in your dissertation, the kind of paradox of nomadic archaeology, which is that, you know, there's this fairly widespread assumption and perhaps misconception that nomadism can't really be detected archaeologically. that sort of by definition, um, nomadism and nomadic people just sort of the lifestyle of nomadism does not leave sufficient material traces um, to be investigated or to be kind of present in the archaeological, record. Um, And so I would love it if you could just talk a little bit about um, sort of the big picture um, of this field of nomadic archaeology in the Russian Empire that you kind of discuss in your dissertation. You know, what time period are we talking about? Um, Who are the kind of main figures or individuals um, who you would say were kind of... uh, driving the field of nomadic archaeology.
1: Thank you so, I mean, It's a thank you very much for this dynamic question. Um, I think that like most most people who hear me talk about my research for the first time, you've kind of hit the nail on the head without actually asking the question what is nomadic archaeology and what even do you mean? And I'm happy to talk about that, so usually when we talk about nomadic archaeology today in the 21st century, this is um, used by professional archaeologists who talk about the kind of day-to-day praxis and how you investigate uh, a site connected to nomadic people, this is um, historically. So what happens is it's a set of practices. You say you look at middens and you use GIS to try to plot the comings and goings of herds or something like this. Uh, So this is one aspect of nomadic archaeology as it's understood today. I work in uh, imperial studies and more specifically in Russian imperial studies and in our Neck of the Woods. Nomadic archaeology was introduced as a concept by uh, a Slavicist uh, literary historian, literary scholar called Michael Kunitzka, about twelve years ago, and um, he basically used it as a kind of a catch-all term when he talked about um, the the ways in which modernist writers in the early twentieth century imagined the the past of basically central Russia, what it is today, central Russia and Ukraine, and talked about that. So I'm, I'm just trying to get at the fact that when I say nomadic archaeology, there is some, some discussion in the field about what this is. But what I actually do with uh, how I understand the concept is a little bit different. Um, when I refer to nomadic archaeology, I don't necessarily mean just the scientific or science-adjacent practices of field excavation, or uh, just the imaginaries of one group. But what I mean is a wide-ranging set of questions, practices, and even more so imaginaries um, uh, through which various people at the time in the late 19th and early 20th century, my dissertation covers roughly the period between 1850 and 1920, um, give or take, um, how these people uh, used the, the nomadic past and the imaginary nomadic past in many ways uh, to make sense of the turbulent world that they were living through. Um, what uh, I think made nomadic archaeology especially attractive to people at the time is uh, that, as one historian has put it, uh, the 19th and early 20th century were kind of a, an age of the question. You, you have to ask the difficult questions and put put one's mind, collective mind, to try to resolve them. Um, and archaeology generally, which was in a global boom at the time, was exciting. I mean, still, it, it, there's an aura of mystique about you know, going up and digging up something material that you can eventually put in a museum. And also it was more accessible than, than other forms of science at the time. Archaeology, I refer to it uh, often, uh, oftentimes as a new science of the uh, turn of the uh, 20th and mid-19th century, um, a new science that promised to be uh, more objective than, say, uh, race science or comparative philology or all these things. Um, so the, the kind of people that were attracted to nomadic archaeology um, were um, various uh, in in that they came from different walks of life, and really, what they were trying to do first and foremost is chart their way um, politically, socially, in in an, in a changing landscape and um, changing in terms of uh, the political situation, in terms of. What it, uh, how they understood the place of Russia and themselves in, in an era when empire was first ascendant and then, descendant, as a political formation, right? And um, they were trying to answer these questions through a a material, um, through a kind of material understanding through a material object right so i I hope that that's a good start i could keep going
2: i'm sure you could um what so what i heard you say was basically that um Uh, a main reason that people were kind of drawn to the question of nomadic archeology span was as a means of um, explaining the present through the past um, and that people were kind of perceiving um, the history of the Russian empire as one that was kind of rooted in nomadism and in this kind of nomadic past um, that in turn kind of provided the basis for Um, the eventual Russian Empire. So I guess I'm curious about the kind of, I'm curious how people exploring these questions um, or coming to these conclusions, how they were defining nomadism, you know, how did they, what did they understand that to be and to mean and to look like? Um, And in turn, how did that seem to, Kind of um, refract onto the present. You know what aspects of sort of contemporary Russian identity were positioned against this sort of perceived nomadic past? If that does that question make Absolutely. sense?
1: Absolutely, it makes okay. perfect sense, <laughs> and it's, I'm happy to answer. I think that one of the things that you just mentioned, yes, nomadic archaeology was used to look at the past and the present but also very much the future right because the the part of the paradox of nomadic archaeology not only is it that nomads uh seemingly can't leave a trace but then they do right but but also that nomads seemingly you can't study them archaeologically because they're right there Right in the in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, uh, very much in the Soviet period, nomads remained kind of a a fixture of um, of contemporary reality. So, as one might imagine, uh, there was a lot of pushback, especially in the early 20th century when. Uh, People were trying to study the past of uh, uh, the archaeological past of people who were very much making claims about being there in the present and looking towards a common future together. So uh, what is your bigger question was about how, how does one come during this time? To, to define an archaeological site. And this was uh, really one of the questions that really drove my research from the beginning. Uh, I think that had you asked me this question uh, two, three years ago, I might not be able to tell you that there even was such a thing as nomadic archaeology. So the way that my uh, dissertation is structured to try to answer this question is I... Looked at uh, four comparative studies, or I conducted four comparative case studies of sites, which were discovered between roughly the 1880s and 19, 1905, who people at the time uh, defined as nomadic, and the process of of doing this. What is kind of counterintuitive, if you look at it from the point of view of, you know, traditional uh, history of science, because it was very situational. Um, The the problem, or I guess one of the perks of doing archaeology at the time, as I mentioned, was more of an open field than other sciences. And part of the reason that was is because um, archaeology was very much an auxiliary perceived as an auxiliary discipline, a, a new science and something that that you could use to further claims you make in other more established, so to speak, sciences. So a lot of the people who claim to have found uh, nomadic sites, I I think it would just be much easier to give direct examples from my research. So there are four nomadic sites identified as such at the time in my dissertation. Uh, Two of them are in what is today Mongolia, so geographically and politically outside the Russian Empire. One is in what is today Kazakhstan in uh, Russian Central Asia, and one is in um, what is today Eastern Ukraine, the the sites have names. Uh one is Karakorum, which was perceived in the late nineteenth century as the capital of Genghis Khan's heirs in Mongolia. Karakoto, which was uh which is the other site in Mongolia today, it's in the PRC, uh was uh, a site that was discovered and uh, ret- reticently attributed to um the nomadic uh, peoples of uh, the Mongolian and Tibetan Highlands. Uh, uh, The site in Ukraine is the catacomb burial of Vyarkhny Saltov, or Upper Saltov, uh, which was uh, a a site that was in a region that was uh, at the time perceived as kind of the, the heartland of the early Russian state, early Rus statehood from uh, from the seventh, uh, eighth, ninth century, and um, Otrar was the site in Central Asia which um, was known as a a waypoint on the Silk Road and was known because during Genghis Khan's last campaign in the thirteenth century there was a a sack of Otrar, of which was seen as one of the biggest crimes that the Mongol Empire supposedly ever committed. So a lot of the time when these people who were claimed to be nomadic archeologists, uh, none of them called themselves nomadic archeologists. I, I just want to make that very clear. But uh, those people who I call nomadic archeologists, archeologists of nomadism, how they came to view these sites as nomadic was very much through um, other, other means, right? So for example, in Karakoram, uh, the, the group of people excavating there, they knew that they were looking, they read Marco Polo, they uh, looked at uh, contemporary British uh, excavations in Central Asia who were also looking for Karakoram, and they went and they, they tried their, their hand on it and uh, supposed that they were more correct. Uh, for example, and with a place like Varkny-Saltiv, uh, uh, in what is today Ukraine, the foundational text of early Russian history, the, the chronicles say that uh, in, this, in this region, the early Rus princes were constantly fighting the, the, the different kinds of nomads, and uh, this was a, a kind of boundary line between them. So sometimes they came already looking f- for traces of nomadic peoples.
2: And so okay, I have a lot of questions, in res- um, sort of as a result of what you just said. So I'm going to try to organize them a little bit. Uh, But my first question is, um, because you mentioned uh, at the beginning of your answer that, you know, this question of nomadic archaeology was a way of understanding and looking to not only the past, but also to the future, uh, or sorry, the past, present and future. Uh, And so I'm curious if, you know, when these people were Um, sort of imagining nomadism um, and the nomadic past, were they doing so along a kind of, you know, Ibn Khaldunian sort of civilizational cycle, uh, which posits that, you know, all great empires sort of begin with nomadism um, and then become settled and then are able to kind of create, you know, cities and, you know, uh, achieve kind of great cultures and cultural output and things like that, but then that that um, level of cultural production will eventually kind of lead to a state of overindulgence, decay, and then people fall sort of into this um, state of like laziness and then those people will be conquered by another nomadic civilization from the outside, and the cycle begins again, to kind of very um, uh, overgeneralize um, Ibn Khaldun's uh, theory of civilization. But that's kind of the, the idea um, of uh, nomadic civilizations and of nomadism in relation to empire that kind of that proliferates and that held sway certainly in the period that you're talking about, I think, um, at least in the regions that I'm more familiar with. So I'm curious if you think that 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 idea holds true in this context as well. Is that how people were kind of envisioning themselves and their future in relation to nomadism? Or were there other kind of Timelines or theories of um, kind of the tra- trajectories of nomadism in relation to civilization that were are at work here.
1: But that, that is an amazing question. Thank you for my, thank you for answering. I'm going to try to answer it. Thank you for asking it. Uh, and the answer is yes and no. Of course, um, w- one of the very interesting things that I've discovered. In the course of doing this project, is that uh, nomadic archaeology, the archaeology of nomadism, was very much kind of a what I would call a horizontal rather than vertical science, network science. Where people, what I mean by that is that the people who studied it were sometimes part of scientific communities or. Uh, you know, um, archaeological um, societies, and, and sometimes they weren't. Sometimes, like for example, in the case of uh, Karakorum, the the people who discovered it all had criminal records. They they were in the eyes of the the Siberian regionalists were, was their collective name for themselves, but in the eyes of the uh, Tsar's government, they were. Uh, criminals who had no no uh, no business, you know, seeing for the state, for example. And at the same time, yes, in the Russian Empire, there there were also groups of, uh, say, Muslims and ulama who were trying to make claims about modernity and Muslim modernity through. Archaeological excavation in Central Asia. Uh, Adip Khalid has written a magisterial work on on this project uh, called Making Uzbekistan. But uh, so this idea of the knew Khaldun, and it, it it existed in the uh, in the zeitgeist, so to speak. But uh, I think of the people that I study the more pervasive understanding of nomadic culture and how it progresses has to do, of course, with uh, Darwin and the uh, kind of um, projection of uh, Darwinian theory onto the social organism in, um, to, to be very blunt about it, they believe that society evolves over time and becomes more complex over time. Becoming more complex means, first and foremost, your relationship to the land and how you produce food. So uh, first there is a tribe and it's wandering, and then it becomes pastoral, and then it becomes sedentarized. Of course, uh, this was kind of the baseline. Not everybody... Who I study in my dissertation, not all of these uh, groups or nodes in the network of nomadic archaeologists um, subscribe to the normative, say, uh, implications of Darwinian theory, but they did. Uh, but they did hold it as one of the uh, basic tenets um, to help explain how nomadic uh, how nomadic society functions.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: And so just um, sort of going off of what you've been talking about, about the kind of science of nomadic archaeology um, and the extent uh, to which some of the main figures involved in it uh, were or were not, uh, strictly speaking, scientists, and... Um, you mentioned um, the other sources um, that these archaeologists were drawing on um, in the pursuit of their excavation. So you brought up Marco Polo, um, other um, the, rep- the excavation reports um, of other archaeologists. Um, so I'm just curious what other sources, um, especially textual sources, um, around nomadism um, and the nomadic in this region in Central Asia and the Russian Empire uh, were available at this time and were actually being used by art by these archaeologists um, were their excavations kind of beginning um, with a textual source you know like Marco Polo mentioned specific sites associated with the Mongol Empire were they reading you know Marco Polo and then sort of going out and um, seeking specific sites that were mentioned in his writings or in the writings of um, other geographers or historians? um, Or how were these, I guess my question is, how were um, the specific sites, the sites that that you use as case studies in your dissertation, how were they identified as sites of interest basically?
1: Thank you for your question. I think that, yes, there's, of course, the the elements that they were, most of the, all of these people were educated people, right? So there is a class element to uh, the study of nomadic archaeology that I don't really make explicit, say, in, in my own research. But uh, these are people mostly, mostly, with uh, at least a complete Middle, middle gymnasium education, so it would be. Um, so they, of course, read uh, these foundational sources on more or less on their region. They, they Often they produced treatises about uh, their region. For example, um, uh, the, the same regionalists, who, Siberian regionalists, who discovered uh, Karakoram's. Precise location. They uh, had a kind of a complex agenda about studying the climate of Siberia and the natural history of Siberia and the uh, problem of demographics in Siberia and uh, all these other aspects. Contemporary, contemporary Inarotsu or native peoples. So, so the study of the past was, was a complex for, for everyone involved, was a part of a much larger, sometimes competing, uh, sometimes mutually exclusive, but uh, coexisting agenda. The, the other part of, your, of the answer to your question is then um, precisely that uh, these nomadic archaeo- archaeologists of nomadism, nomadic archaeologists, were reading each other. Uh, There was an institution of uh, archaeological congresses in the Russian Empire. I think from the 1850s to the early 1900s, there was something like 14 of them. And these people would come together and uh, discuss questions. Uh, Questions like, how do we understand what is an what is a nomadic site and what is not a nomadic site how do we differentiate between um nom- nomadic burials and non dom- nomadic burials right suppose they w- one of the commonalities that they all kind of shared is that they understood like michael Kunichica says the the scholar i mentioned initially that uh, th- there were certain uh, features of the landscape that could be associated with nomads, precisely uh, the burial mound or Kurgan, for example, right? That that was a, a great uh, indicator that nomads were supposedly here at one point. Uh, so they would um, read each other and they would congregate and ask questions and try to... Horizontally, again, exchange knowledge about this. Um, it was it was very much an ongoing process. Nomadic archaeology at the time was understood as a science which was in the in the very early gestational stages of gathering information, and a lot of it, at least publicly facing, they said we're we're going to gather knowledge now, or gather information now, gather data now, and then make. Uh, make claims about it later of course in practice that is not what happened but part of the uh, pursuit of say scientific objectivity for for a lot of the actors that I study was to, um, to claim kind of an analytical distance at the time that they were actually practicing mm.
2: and so you mentioned you know that these excavations were of course not without kind of um, not divorced from a larger political context um, and certainly uh, it seems to me that they, especially um, excavations in Siberia and sort of on what's imagined as being the fringers or the periphery of the Russian Empire um, certainly it seems to be the case that these excavations were um, part of the Russian Empire's kind of colonial Expansion. Um, So, I guess I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about that, about how these projects and this sort of formation of a discourse around nomadism, this kind of perceived nomadic past, how that relates to the colonial expansionist nature of the Russian Empire, which I know that kind of the relationship of the Russian Empire to colonialism, I think is a bit of a fraught, you know, and very complicated question. And I think it's a question that as someone who's not a Russian specialist, I almost kind of don't quite have the vocabulary to ask that question and to really articulate what colonialism meant and looked like within the context of the Russian Empire, especially in this period. So I'm kind of hoping that you can do that a little bit for me and for listeners, is to try to um, articulate a little bit uh, what um, how these projects served a colonizing mission, and then perhaps on the other hand, how. Um, which you mentioned uh, at the very beginning of our conversation as well, how some of the contemporary nomadic peoples who were involved with these projects in some way, how they might have, you know, exhibited resistance to or participated in uh, Russia's, uh, Russia's colonial expansion through these projects as well. So I know that's a Complicated question, uh, but I'm, I'm certain you're up to the challenge. Uh, so I'm just going to throw it out there uh, and let you respond.
1: It's a very big question, and I'm so happy that you asked it because in, in talking through it, we can kind of flush out a little bit of the nuance of, of the situation on the ground of nomadic archaeology. You are absolutely right that there they're, for some of the actors involved, there was a colonializing, colonialist uh, tinge to what they were doing. Um, for example, the the discovery of the expedition that discovered Carahato in 1907 uh, was planned, for example, as a as kind of a direct response. To what was going in the Russian Empire? What was going on in the Russian Empire at the time, specifically in regards to the situation on the um, Russian Far East, where Russia had recently lost uh, the uh, Russo-Japanese War, uh, completely, um, having not planned to do it. Right, they, they planned to win and reaffirm the. The power, say, of Russia as a um, as a modern power in Asia and in the world, but then they lost. So th- there were people uh, who, in the early 20th century, said explicitly, "We need to go back to Mongolia and, you know, uh, reassert the uh, the primacy of Russia in the region because." The French are doing it. The uh, uh, sorry, the, the French are doing it, and the British are doing it, and we're falling behind. At the same time, uh, there were other participants in this praxis of nomadic archaeology who cannot and should not be understood as, uh, say, colonialists in the in the um, basic sense that we, we often. Hear colleagues talk about the fringes and you know the the imperial project at this time. For example, uh, the the very same Siberian regionalists who were exiles and who were the ones who were working at Karakorum. Part of their wider political project was to say, "We Siberians have been colonized." By the Russians, they have called they called the Muscovites, right? So we Siberians are are the victims of colonial oppression. We Siberians uh, have been mistreated and let let loose in in this wild land. And if you don't do a little bit more to you know keep us, we'll make like the uh, American colonists of seventeen seventy six and secede, right? So and then when say someone like the uh, Siberian regionalist Nikolai Yadrintsev went to Karakoram, what he was, uh, the kind of vision of the place that he had had was uh, that Karakoram is this vibrant uh, place where nomads and non-nomads and different religions, they they come together and they, Uh, You know, build this great city, and then through Siberia, they they fan out to the rest of the world. So basically, what he was saying in in that particular case of Karakorum was to turn the the entire optics on its head, to turn it around and say, actually, the the gate of civilization is not, let's say, the the uh, ancient Greeks right it's it's through Siberia, and we can still ask he would say who who is colon- who is colonizing whom right at, at the same time uh someone like um uh the uh, the people who were working in southern Russia and Ukraine they had no no colonial optic because they were working specifically in the the heartland, right, of what was perceived as uh, the, the, the cradle of Russian statehood, Rus statehood and then Russian statehood. So their optics, even though they were, they might have called themselves colonized in other ways, for example, the ban on speaking, writing, publishing, uh, in the Ukrainian language, which a lot of the people saw as a colonizing move they they would still then not use per se their um, findings at upper at upper, Sol- Alt- uh, upper saltov to um, to substantiate this claim so th- there is a lot of there's a lot of discussion going on at the time about what does it mean to be. Colonial and how does this colonialism function? For example, I, I hate to jump from case to case, but uh, again with the Siberians, right? They, they said we we are colonized by Muscovites, but at the same time, now we we are able to you know spread um, spread civilization deeper into Asia. This was part of the political project to to prove to the, the powers that be in St. Petersburg that uh, Siberians could be a part of the modernizing empire. And one of the ways in which uh, Nikola Jadransif, uh envisioned this participation of Siberians was through colonizing others in in the in the broadest sense of the word. Um, and of course, even within the scientific establishment uh, of the, the Russian Empire, the the kind of most established academics who were doing this this science or practicing nomadic archaeology, they had uh, very very competing ideas about w- what it what it meant to make their Make their findings useful to the state right so for example in the case of central asia uh otrar um th- there was a lot of pushback from uh nomads on the spot when uh when the people in tashkent for for example were trying to organize the uh the excavations of otrar native people native Kazakhs contemporary nomads who were actually based in places like what is today northern northern Kazakhstan they uh, refused to participate in this uh, in this venture because they had they knew of the excavations and uh, at the time there was a fledgling native press and for example in the Kazakh language and that there is no no mention of of these excavations in the press, and um, there's just kind of a what I believe is a willful neglect of archaeology per se as a as a means to um, to make claims about um, the the deep history of the Kazakh people in the region. And I can go into we can talk more about why this is. But, uh, again, colonialism as a, as a as an umbrella is present, but the way that it's understood on the spot is is very different. I'm so sorry
2: um, and so something that sort of stood out to me while I was reading your dissertation uh, were potential parallels to Um, archaeological excavations and research um, being undertaken in other colonial contexts in this same period, Um, so in the Middle East, in North Africa, um, in North America, um, where archaeologists, both amateur and kind of professional, uh, were similarly, I think, interested in these questions of nomadism and kind of trying to detect the nomadic past to the extent possible um and trying to sort of explain um the contemporary peoples and civilizations that they were encountering through the lens of this kind of perceived nomadic past but i've i've never and again this is far from my field of expertise but i've never really encountered the idea of a kind of uh, dedicated or defined field of nomadic archaeology in these other geographical contexts. Um, so it strikes me that this is perhaps something of a uniquely Russian imperial phenomenon, that it's possible to say that there were ar- that there were archaeologists who were really kind of dedicating themselves to these. Questions, to these kind of specific questions around nomadism. Um, so I just want to put that out there and get your response to that and just gauge if I'm correct or not, if you would agree that this is in some ways a phenomenon that was somewhat distinct in the Russian empire, given the kind of conditions of the Russian empire specifically, but also ask... You know, to what extent these excavations and the archaeology of nomadism and like you mentioned, the archaeological congresses and things like that that were taking place within the Russian Empire, to what extent um, these sort of were influential beyond just the Russian Empire, you know, were archaeologists working in other parts of the world aware of these questions and conversations participating in them? Um, Were these uh, conclusions and excavations around nomadism um, uh, taken up by archaeologists working in other contexts?
1: Absolutely. Um, This is a wonderful question, and I think this is a wonderful time for me to. Kind of clarify and reassert for for the benefit of those listening at home that uh the people that I call nomadic archaeologists seldom, if ever even called themselves archaeologists, let alone nomadic archaeologists right and this is this is part of the uh, the nuance of the of the field as I see it is that it's kind of not there, but it is. Right, the, the the people who I study would not uh, go and say I am a you know specialist on nomadism. Uh, they would say something like I am a historian of uh, early Russia, and one of the issues that uh, interests me in early Russia is: Are we Greeks, or are we not Greeks? Right? Are are we are we Slavs or are we Greeks? And to try to answer this question, I'm going to look at, you know, these Black Sea uh, coast um, burial mounds, Kurgans, and try to figure out what is nomadic culture here, what is sedentary, and how does this work? Uh, At the same time, these were people who, outside of their day job, right, whatever that might be, that might be a, a newspaper editor or um, a university professor or a soldier, right, they very much knew uh, what was going on in other empires and other imperial contexts, how much of it... Of an interest in nomadic archaeology and the problem of nomadism in the long durée is a uniquely Russian phenomenon, Russian imperial phenomenon. I I don't think that it is. Right. I think that uh, uh, the optics of the majority of these people were firmly set on what, say, the French were doing in Algeria, or the British were doing in India, or the excavations in greater north africa and the in the um ottoman empire that that europeans were doing uh so there was especially in the second half of the of the 19th century a kind of a civilizational like this is our orient uh uh, type uh, rhetoric but uh it it didn't necessarily mean what we think it means um in that there was not necessarily this understanding that that Russia is unique. And uh, just in terms of connections, um, uh, the archaeological congresses and the people who I study, um, they had a vast network of um, international connections in the imperial period. Uh, Most most uh, closely with places like uh, the Austria-Habsburg Empire, Austrian-Habsburg Empire, especially uh, the provinces of um, inhabited of what they what they understood as Slavic provinces, so today's Western Ukraine, Ch- Czechia, um, Slovakia, right, and and they they were very much talking about that. Uh, the people in Siberia were very much uh, interested in what uh Scandinavian archaeologists were doing because the question of uh migration uh between Siberia and the uh the Baltic far north was very salient at the time uh so so this was very much a global um a global phenomenon.
2: And so, maybe just a final question as we're coming up on the end of our time um, is uh, what the next steps are in this project for you? I know that's a, uh, not the nicest question to ask someone who's just finished their PhD. Um, and I'm sure the next step, you know, the immediate next step is turning this into a book. Um, but I'm curious um, just where you see this research going in the future if you're planning on continuing with this project and this kind of specific research question, maybe looking at more sites um, or what directions you think that this is going to go in the future. Uh, And of course, I'm sure um, the war in Ukraine uh, complicates research for you. So I'm also curious, you know, how you might be planning on coping with and addressing um, problems of archival access and things like that in your future research.
1: Well, the the listeners can't see it, but my eyes lit up. Um, <laughs> the, there is, of course, quite a bit of work to do on this project. Aside from, I, I've only scratched the surface of different kind of nomadic sites that uh, were discovered in the, uh, in the imperial period. I definitely plan to continue temporally this project into um, after, say, the 1920s, into the 1930s, because a lot of the time or a lot of the excavations of other nomadic sites actually explicitly happened in in the Soviet period as part of state policy, Uh, state policy of indigenization. I think that uh, listeners of the podcast who have listened before will remember episodes, for example, on the indigenization projects in Mongolia, socialist Mongolia. And there is, of course, a lot of uh, back and forth between Nomadic archaeologists who stayed in the Soviet Union after the 1917 revolution and the project of state building in um, in the Northeast Asia, um, but also I think that uh, one or one aspect that I wish to continue with is that those uh, nomadic ar- archaeologists of nomadism nomadic archaeologists who left after nineteen seventeen because uh, there there is a tra- there was a tradition uh, within the emigration of of following through with these um, with these questions and trying to figure out alternatives to to how to understand the nomadic past. I think the uh, kind of quintessential project that listeners might be familiar with is the um, Eurasianists of the 1920s who left uh, Russia and who tried to reconcile also the paradox of nomadic archaeology, but working in the emigration. But at the same time, there were people who left Central Asia to go to the Ottoman Empire, right, or traveled uh, to the Near East um, in the 1930s and 40s and uh, continued work from there. And of course, there is quite a bit of of work to do on that front as well. I think that this is where I see myself spending a lot of time, as you mentioned, given the uh, inaccessibility for the near future of Russian archives. I've been in touch with uh, archives in Mongolia and um, the United States and France, Germany, to, to try to um, branch out this research. Another kind of big, big question that came out of this was to try to look at the ways in which the archaeology of the peoples of the very far circumpolar north. Was understood in um, in the late imperial and early Soviet period because I I believe that uh, it's about time to re revisit this question. It was, of course, uh, posited about thirty years ago in the uh, landmark study by Yuri Slouskin, the uh, Arctic mirrors uh small peoples of the north but um i think that in light of what i've discovered through my own research um there might be more more that is to be said about um, the nomads of the north
2: fantastic that sounds fascinating um yeah i think uh if we had more time it would have been really interesting um to talk a little bit more about the Soviet context um, and sort of what happens in the field of nomadic archaeology with the transition from the Russian Empire to the USSR and how discourses um, and the sort of political ideologies around nomadism um, change uh, against the backdrop of that transition. Um, But hopefully in a couple of years, maybe you can come back for a part two and you'll have a lot more to tell us about the archaeology of nomadism um, during the 1920s and 30s um, in the USSR. Uh, But thank you so much for coming on to talk to me about your research. I think this topic is so fascinating um, and I'm looking forward to reading more of your work
1: around this topic in the future. Thanks so much for having me and I'm excited to come back if you and your listeners would have me. Thank you so much, everybody.